Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves. And we're here to talk about cinema. This episode is going to be about film in 2020, film culture in 2020. The greatest year of all time. Isn't that right, Sam? Yeah, it was truly one for the ages. I took a photograph on New Year's Eve in 2019, going into 2020, and it was like the balloons in this like high rise of 2020, like looking out the window, right? Like pressed against a window and it looked like SOS because like half of it was like blocked off. And I was just reflecting recently on like how prescient, uh, omen, a portend of 2020 that really was. At the time, I was just like, that's pretty jokes. And then, I don't know, I think it came up in my, like, Instagram memories or some shit. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that was luck. If you'd done that post this year, it would have been the drones of Captain Tom Moore. <laughs> what a anus mirabilis, though, am I right? No, there was nothing. I had no problems with this year. I went to the cinema bare. My mental health was great. All joking aside... There have been some good movies that have come out this year, I would say. We went to the cinema... Probably a bit too much, to be honest. Yeah, we went to the cinema a fair bit. And, I mean, I guess they're sort of indefinitely closed again here for now, for the next couple of months at least. But yeah, I guess a fair bit of the stuff on my list I managed to see in the cinema. A lot of it was uh, small screen, you know. But I guess we'll get into that. I think I saw six of these in the cinema. You're going to hear our top 10s and some supplementary film culture highlights of 2020 as well. So strap in, listeners. Me and you, we got fine taste. My number 10 of 2020 was The Two Popes. <laughs> it's a good film, you know. I, I actually forgot it was a 2020 film. When did it come onto Netflix here? Probably like January the 4th. Yeah, great. I think. <laughs> I was really surprised by it. I liked it more than City of God or The Constant Gardener. It made me laugh. It made me cry. I hate Anthony Hopkins, but he gave a damn good performance as the Nazi Pope in this film. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good time. It hasn't left Netflix yet, so... Uh, Check it out, listeners, honestly. Should have won more Oscars. I don't... <laughs> what did it win Oscars for? I don't know. It got bare nominations, but it might not have even won any. Mm. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. It's like a Netflix film, right? Yeah. But, you know, there's no ownership anymore. There's no copies. Like, it's just there until they take it away. I would say if you liked uh, Eurovision, the Fire Saga, check out Two Pops. They're kind of tonally similar. Mm. Very subtle, honourable mention there. I thought we'd see it higher up your list, really. <laughs> Sam, what was your number 10 film of 2020? It's Lajlai's Les Miserables, named after the Victor Hugo novel set in Montfermeil, similarly, but it's like a classic banya drama about urban life, all the sort of nuances of it. Saw this one in the cinema. I feel like it got a bit of hate from people because it's quite sort of multi-perspectival and I wouldn't say it's sympathetic to the police, but we spend quite a lot of time with them during which they loosely philosophise on what they're doing and their role in the community and stuff like that. But they are also shown to be like chauvinists. Interesting film, interesting filmmaker. Lajlai is from there. It's basically a sort of community project. I guess there are lots of like first-time actors, non-professionals in there. It uses Montfermeil as a sort of lived space very effectively. It's a good film. 
we're going to keep on coming back to films that basically feature real people, even if they're fiction films. Um, I think that's a bit of a theme of 2020, at least for our list. Sure. I really rate this film. I, I fucked up by forgetting that it came out this year. Um, I saw Let End in the cinema recently, and I think this is actually a superior film, mm. even though it did uh, humanize the pigs in a way that that film never did. For sure. In a more... Uh, What's, what's the what's the reverse of anthropomorphism, or um, the reverse of an, animal farm or whatever? Zoomorphism. Uh, I guess it's not that really. <laughs> I thought this film was great. I love the I love the photography. Mm. I appreciate the whole story, the making of the film. You know, like based off a short and also based off a piece of footage that Ladge Lies shot of cops terrorizing a kid in Montfermeil. Mm. It was really good in the cinema as well. I gotta say. Yeah. I think in another year, it could have really taken off at the box office. Just so I can be that box office guy on film grays. I hate to be it, but I am it. <laughs> Les Miserables. Fine film. Fine choice. What's your number nine, Emmett? My number nine is Bill and Ted Face the Music. <laughs> cool. Just getting all my shithead films out of the way, you know. But I really <laughs> did love this shit. It made me feel really good about rock and roll. We talked about Wild Zero and we do have a pod in the pipeline about rock and roll movies. So uh, stay tuned to Film Grays for that. But this, I just thought as an alternative to standard Hollywood shit. I mean, I know there are a lot of long gap sequels. Borat 2 was also about like passing on the the gauntlet to the daughters of the like extremely het man comedy protagonist yeah but i just love the whole the whole thing every second of this film i had a smile on my face hendrix and beethoven jamming unforgettable <sighs> fine performances alex winter is a god keanu obviously a big fan and yeah my experience of cinema in 2020 would be incomplete without acknowledging this film which was just a wholly pleasurable experience even more so than the two popes that's why it edged it for me loved it fair enough man i guess it's very different to a lot of the sorts of films that we're going to be talking about today yeah it's about to get serious listeners <laughs> it does have a really nice vibe though um the music they write to unite the world is appropriately atrocious <laughs> i don't know man friend of the pod ned powley said that it sounded like fang island that's the best music ever made and I appreciate it. Just jamming on that C chord, you know, with all the with all the BVs going, whoa. We could have used a lot more of that in 2020, to be honest. And I'm glad that the power of rock and roll will never die. Great. Hey, hey, my, my. Sam, what was your number nine film of 2020? My number nine was a Mexican film called The Good Girls by director Alejandro Marquez Aber. I think it actually was made a couple of years ago, premiered a couple of years ago, but I think it had its UK premiere on Mubi this year. Yes. So it's not like New Mutants, though, like, you know, rollouts for films take a lot of time with festivals and stuff like that. It's mm -hmm. not like this was like on the shelf and people were like, oh, do we have to release it? Like, this looks like <laughs> a genuinely worthwhile, good movie. I'm yet to catch it, but. Yeah, it was really good. It's set in the 80s. It sort of follows this like petty bourgeois tennis club clique and their like sort of materialistic lifestyles are challenged by a uh, sort of national financial crisis there. Mm. It has a sort of Boondwellian quality. There's a scene where they all start barking in a restaurant. 
Oh, like small acts. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. I'm, <laughs> I'm cutting that out. Uh, it has really nice photography, very dreamy when it needs to be, but then very stark and I guess sort of desaturated when like reality hits. Cool film, worth checking out. A good sort of social satire. Terrific. I need to catch it. Yeah, that's The Good Girls. Emmett, what was your number eight? My number eight was Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Celine Sciamma. Good film. Huge movie. It's available on Mubi if anyone hasn't seen it yet. It's a bit like Citizen Kane in that I've actually seen the film like replicated through GIFs and stuff. Yeah. Pretty much every day I've been on Twitter, but it was close to perfect, I'd say. I'd flawless, these kinds of things. I watched all of Skiyama's movies this year and I didn't really like any of them that much, but uh, I like Girlhood. I'd seen that before. I thought mm. it was really good. But this... Maybe it's the historical setting that kind of got me or whatever and the sort of intertextuality. But brought me to tears. I saw it for free. Great performances. The modes of disclosure. That's the thing I liked about it the most is how like the modes of disclosure beyond just expositional dialogue. Well, it's a frame story in the first instance, but also the paintings themselves have a communicative function in it. It's got a real kicker in it, that last scene. Mm. I think you're right in that the sort of historical or period setting of it does have a transformative quality because it, I guess it just gives it a like additional romantic veneer, but also makes it more transgressive for its depicting. Certainly. Beautiful film. It was in my honourable mentions. Honestly, my top... I th- I think these lists are sort of bullshit, to be honest. It could very well have <laughs> been in mine. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Bill, Bill and Ted less so, although it was entertaining. <laughs> But, you know, beautiful relationships in both. Mm. Sam, what was your number eight? My number eight was Roy Anderson's new film about endlessness, which um, we discussed on a previous episode and we will discuss further down the line in this one. We should have just turned this shit into like a clip show where we just uh, yeah excised <laughs> the, the moment. It would have made our job a lot easier. But no, it's going to be revisited yeah. before the end of this episode, listeners. Have you seen it in English yet? Um, no, I don't think so. But the subs weren't a barrier, and I feel like his images, you know, speak for themselves most of the time. We'll talk about it later, though. Emmett, yeah. what was your number seven favourite film of the year? I'm going to return to the good vibes for this one. Um, The Woman Who Ran by Hong Sang-soo. Mm. Much like every other Hong Sang-soo film that I've seen, I've seen about ten of them, they're very, very straightforward and simplistic, but those things actually give way to endless space in your brain to think about the things like most of his other films it stars kim minhee who's like a well muse is like a very gendered term so i'm gonna say <laughs> collaborator <laughs> it was my favorite korean film of 2020 south korean film i haven't seen any north korean film <laughs> only because your number seven i would consider to be a 2019 film unlike what i said on the last episode but yeah it follows kim minhee as she has three uh, conversations with like friends that she's been a bit distanced from. I don't know if it's a COVID thing, but it feels like she's like reconnecting and like catching up with friends for the first time in a while. Mm. All female friends, by the way. They have really interesting conversations about like vegetarianism and employment and these kinds of things. And it's really rigorously structured where you have sort of a one of them talking for about, you know, longer than a reel of film, about 20 25 minutes and then they're all interrupted by like a man a disturbing force 
really communicated a lot despite having the barest elements possible really i think this has fewer cuts than about endlessness even mm. but it's a world i want to live in claire's camera his was a film that he made set in can but most of them are set in seoul and this one more than others that i've seen i mean there's so many i'd recommend like nobody's daughter on the beach at night alone taylor cinema these are all fantastic films um they're all pretty similar tonally some of them are in that like nice digital black and white more on that later when we talk about my number one film of the year mank <laughs> but this one beautiful palette looks great and more importantly it feels great i hope i can say that as a male viewer and not be out of order in saying that but i really appreciate it it's one of his best that i've seen you should definitely check it out sam I'm really keen. It was one of the last uh, Movie Go films, I think. Was it? Maybe I misremember. It looks really good. I haven't seen any of them. Much to my shame. They're so calm, honestly. I don't think you can really go wrong with Hong. Mm. You can't go wrong with Bong either. Sam, what's your number seven of 2020? It's Parasite, which had its UK release in, I think, February. Decidedly a 2020 film in the UK. And with another film that we're going to be discussing um i was keen to watch it in the cinema rather than just like stream it at the end of 2019 when everyone was most excited about it glad i waited to see it in cinema super entertaining film bong's just got it all you know we we spoke about his filmography in an episode earlier in the year after we'd settled down on parasite a little bit good episode listeners check it out yeah (laughs) he's just a master storyteller I think one of my favourite things about Parasite is, I guess, the use of space. I guess it's also commonly remarked upon, and there's the, like, very cool poster for it that really emphasises that aspect of it. Not just in the house, but also in the way that he uses um, urban geography and topography to illuminate cast dynamics. I guess that's something he also did in Barking Dogs and Snowpiercer, as we discussed in that episode. But it's just, yeah. A delightful execution of those uh, sort of stylistic and thematic imperatives. As Donald Trump said, I don't know why they're making us watch Korean movies. Why can't we have Gone with the Wind again? But (laughs) I did want to ask something about that poster. Mm. The like Google Chrome Masonic logo beach ball that features on the poster Mm. isn't in the movie, but it's very eye-catching on the classic poster. Yeah, I wasn't actually talking about that poster. I was talking about... You're talking about the UK one? The illustrated one. That's a fine poster. I'm not sure about the Google ball. (laughs) If you know what's going on, listeners, please let us know. And don't send us QAnon memes. We don't want that. (laughs) Emmett, what was your number six? My number six was Baccarat. Great. More on that later. But while we're recommending previous episodes of Film Grey's, our deep dive on the films of Kleber Mendoza Filio was one of my favorite episodes that we did this year, if I may say so. I think this film's fucking brilliant. We're going to talk about it later. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. It's really got something for everyone. It takes all the boxes. It's insanely entertaining and rich and has a lot to say. Yeah. Politically resonant. Yeah, we will talk about it a bit more in a little bit. But one thing about Baccarat is that compared to the rest of his filmography, which is very... Um, focused on sort of urban social dynamics and gentrification and stuff like that. Um, this is way more far out there. And yeah, you're right in saying that if you enjoy Westerns, if you like fucking John Carpenter, if you, 
you know, Definitely. it's super entertaining. Sam, what was your number six of 2020? My number six of 2020 is a film that we're going to be talking about further down the line. God, it's such an awful way of structuring. <laughs> it's cool. We will talk about all these films. It's provocative, man. It gets the people going. Yeah. Uh, Pedro Costa's Vitalina Varela, the last film I saw in the cinema before the first lockdown in a packed ICA2 screening. It's an astonishing film. A... Yeah. We'll talk about it later. We'll get, in, we'll, get in, we'll get into it later. Safe to say, though, that we didn't go together, but I will never forget my experience of seeing that projected. Mm. Never. I'll mm. take it to the grave. Yeah. I'll take the smell of the ICA to the grave as well. <laughs> and you didn't even have Modi from Second Run and Pedro Costa stonedly introduce it, but... That sounds great. It was seeing Stephen Maltmer solo and seeing Pedro Costa in the flesh and be like, oh, well, my heroes are stoners. Huh. Yeah, that Maltmer <laughs> show sort of sucks, I've got to say. One of the worst gigs I've ever been to in my life, even though he's a king. Yeah, of course. We'll talk about First Cow in the future, but... Oh, no, oh, is fuck. he in it? No. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't even mean to fucking spoil it. Yeah, that's the best cameo I've ever seen. He's just walking. He doesn't have any dialogue, but he's just walking around, like, <sighs> playing a fiddle, like a bass or whatever. And just, like, it sounds like uh, the first Pavement album or whatever, you know. It sounds like the antithesis of this show, the majority of which he spent leaning over his laptop with his guitar sort of dangling around his neck. He was playing the St. Vincent ladies guitar as well which i thought was jokes we'll see that's cool cool but i mean is that i don't want to sound right wing by invoking any of these terms but like is that cultural appropriation you know like doesn't matter cut edit (laughs) we love you steven maltmus traditional techniques was a fucking banging album and we were talking about pedro costa anyway so it doesn't matter Mm. we've done our low five haven't we our bottom five films of the year yeah yeah (laughs) I've watched bear shit. I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you what your least favourite film of the year was. Oh, it's not Tenet. Nope. It was Fanny Lie Delivered by Thomas Clay. Fine choice. I hated that shit. With Maxine Peake as a um, 17th century sort of repressed housewife in Shropshire. I mean, dude, if this film didn't exist, the schools would have been closed since March or whatever. (laughs) Don't forget that. No one forget that. All right. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. <laughs> the disdain with which the teaching unions and teachers and education workers is treated at the moment is just must be noted beyond elliptic. But you know, much like uh, your very prescient number two of 2019, every politician would say, I don't care if we go down in history as barbarians, you know. Huh? But Becky, Bex Bailey, she cared. She mm. still cares. Follow her on Twitter. She's still coming out with valuable stuff. Yeah, of course. Shout out. Do you want to elect your worst film of the year at this point? My worst film of the year was 1917. Also, just fucking... Was that this year? Yeah, it's just, you know, for living in this Tory world that we live in, you know, it still managed to trigger Lawrence Fox, but I hated every second of it. I wanted to leave the cinema. And the fact that I saw Uncut Gems in the cinema that evening, which was the face-peeling, stressful experience that this film was supposed to be. Mm. I'd like to mention Uncut Gems as an honourable mention, because that film's fucking banging. Yeah. I'm still detoxing from the uh, hype. But yeah, I think the hype was justified. I also think the 
the Safties episode we did, our most listened to, one of my least favorites, not just for audio quality, yeah. but I don't know. Well, I think we've come a long way, man. <laughs> I'd, Still I'd, using the same mics, though. Yeah. <laughs> On 1917, uh, just what a stinker. I forgot it came out this year, and I thought watching that old geezer tot around his garden would be the worst bit of World War One propaganda I had to <laughs> in- interact with this year, but... <laughs> I was wrong. It was like in seventeen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hated that shit. I hope you know no one's gonna remember that shit anyway. They'll be like nineteen seventeen. What the Eisenstein film? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's get into our top fives. My fifth favourite film, I hate to keep on recommending old episodes of Film Craze, but dear listener, please check them out. I'm really proud of them. Yeah. I said on that show that this was my favourite film of the year. I didn't quite make it, but I thought this film was fucking brilliant. I haven't thought about it too much, but the experience still lasted. And, you know, 40 minutes of like two fine actors driving in the snow, in shadows, arguing. I'm thinking of Ending Things by Charlie Kaufman. I loved this shit. It's exactly what I want from cinema. I wish I could have seen it in the cinema. I think it would have been a really rich time. Exactly what you want from a Netflix art movie. I think people seem to really hate this shit. Even like Mark Kermode, I don't don't really care to bring him up on the podcast, but like I remember when he reviewed it, he was like quite lukewarm on it. I mean, like I didn't really get it, but like Jesse Buckley was amazing and like there's a lot to appreciate. Straight in his bottom films of the year, just because I think it's like festered as an experience yeah, for a lot of people. But I really appreciate it. I don't know when I'm going to watch it again. Probably not for quite a while, but I really appreciate it. And it's led to a lot of interesting discussions with my friends. A lot of people I know really hated it. Yeah, it was really divisive in our uh, film club community. Definitely. I personally quite enjoyed it. I didn't have an especially strong reaction to it. I really like both lead performances. I started watching Fargo season four last night also, which has a really jokes Jesse Buckley performance in it as a sort of mad nurse. Yeah, it's a good film. And, you know, it doesn't hurt Charlie Kaufman's filmography, I'd say. (laughs) I think it's his best adaptation. (laughs) Fair enough. Sam, what was your number five film of 2020? My number five was Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Oi, big movie. Yeah, 2019 film by most accounts. But again, like Parasite, it came out here. Wanted to, you know, cram it in last year and just stream it. Really glad I saw it in the cinema. It's a film that wants to be projected. If you've seen one frame from it, you know what the aesthetic is. It has a very boxy aspect ratio. They shot it on old black and white stock. It has a really interesting look that matches. It's like a fucking dagger type or something to match the weird 19th century vibes. Talking about good uh, pairs of performances. Yeah, man. Patrick Sickles from Titus Andronicus killed that shit, man. <laughs> Well, <laughs> Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson are great as the pair of lighthouse keepers. Interesting, symbolically, historically, aesthetically, spooky-ass film. I've been a bit negligent by not including it in my list because I was so gassed off it when I went to see it. And, like, 
A24 really did me hard with it, like because I was just hyped off it. I love The Witch as well. Oh uh, yeah, it's one of my favourite 21st century films. To which I think it achieves the exact same that this does in terms of periodization and like the mood of the time. This film was really living deliciously. <laughs> I haven't I haven't watched it in 2020, so I guess that's why it's not in my list. But I did see it mm. three times in one week in the cinemas in the states last year, and the three times I saw it, I was in different states of sobriety. <laughs> But I had totally different takeaways. That's, that's the thing I really appreciated about this film is that the first time I saw it, I was reading Capital at the time, right? So I was like, oh man, it's so crazy, this like labor relations dynamic. And then like... The second time you were reading Freud. <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of was, man. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very malleable film. I think you can you can take from it what you get out of it, but... The images are inscrutable. The performances are fucking brilliant. Like the whole craft of the filmmaking, I really appreciate. Um, especially the fact that it looks like Vampire by Drea, which is about to have its 90th anniversary. Wow. It looks it looks more like that than it does like uh, Mank or other contemporary black and white films. Yeah, for sure. This is such a good way of illustrating how that fails to capture the sort of... Sure, sure. <laughs> Uh, the period mood um yeah this also reminds me actually that just for an exhibition that i went to earlier in the year before everything went crazy the leon spillier retrospective at the royal academy in london i bro i'm sorry i didn't make it honestly uh it doesn't i mean it's your lost man i wasn't familiar with his work but he does sort of rank among my favorite sort of modern painters slash you know image makers now i guess he was sort of contemporary to edward munch and he worked in ostend in belgium uh this, this beach town and he did all these like super moody ominous inky seascapes lighthouse scenes pier mm. scenes um and yeah I, in my mind these are connected cultural phenomena now um looking out from different sides of the north atlantic through the same lens in different times i'll tell you what it was it was since they did the the restructuring of the ra and you can't enter the exhibitions through the gift shop anymore and see them all in reverse i just i don't really go anymore yeah i will I don't really go to any paid exhibitions, but there was something about this. Well, not these days, but... Well, yeah, yeah, but there was something about this that drew me to it. It was great. Um, Sorry, very tangential, but... So that's Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse slash the Leon Spillier retrospective at the RE is your fifth favourite film of 2020. Exactly, man. Ontologically linked and numerologically now. I'll tell you what, The Lighthouse is a legitimate classic because... I will be revisiting that shit like at many stages in my life. I can tell you that. Yeah. And I mean, it was flawed, but I did love it. And it really pissed me off at times. But I think it's a really worthwhile film, especially for a, you know, a hip film to be interesting. I had High Life in my top five last year, you know, so maybe it's just this man. Mm. Emmett, what was your fourth favourite film or films of 2020? Okay, well... My fourth favourite film of 2020 was Dark Waters by Todd Haynes, but I'm also going to give a special shout out, influenced by our comrade Jack Frayne Reed's appearance on the pod last year, where he gave a slash, the new Clint Eastwood film, to his number four. I'm doing exactly the same because I think Richard Jewell pairs quite nicely with uh, Dark Waters. 
Dark Waters, I'll never forget because it was the first film I saw in a cinema in like four months. And it was very empty screening and I felt very uneasy about going to the cinema, but that actually really complimented this film. I don't know if you've ever seen Poison by Todd Haynes or Safe. Have you seen either of those? I've seen Safe and Dark Waters. I appreciated Dark Waters because like those films, it has this like really insidious creeping... I mean, this is literally a film about like corporations poisoning the water supply and like disabling like thousands and thousands of rural dwelling Americans and the legal case surrounding that. But Poison's a film about AIDS and Safe is a film about all sorts of like end of history anxieties. But they... Mm. The toxins. The toxins, exactly. I don't know many films that really communicate that feeling where the film is genuinely poisoned. I paired it with Richard Jewell because, I mean, I love that film. I can't include it in my top 10 because I would, I mean, I literally have, but (laughs) I would feel dishonest to have spent like an hour last week screaming about how like Mank is so disrespectful to the legacy of Orson Welles and like so untrue, but celebrate this film that like spuriously demonizes the work of the, you know, ambulance chasing journalist, Kathy Scruggs played by Olivia Wilde in the film. Either way, Richard Jewell, I think, is a brilliant film. But both these films really, like, aestheticize the crushing and numbing experience of living in this, like, neoliberal hellscape that we live in. Yeah. I I mean, you should listen to Jesse Hawkins' interview with Matt Chrisman about the 1517s Paris if you want to hear this talked about more (laughs) eloquently. There's a moment in Dark Waters, spoiler alert, it's like one of the last scenes of the film, where like what you've been waiting for, like the unbelievable resolution, like, oh, they beat the case. And it's just a man on a phone exclusively illuminated by like the Benihana logo, like receiving this. And then it like goes out to this wide shot where that's all you see. And it's just like, most of the film takes place in these like nasty offices. People aren't really smoking, but you get the vibe. Like the period details, much like what I liked about Uncut Gems, totally pervade the whole thing. And you're so aware of the fact that these people live in the 90s just because of the way they think about the world and how they're not (laughs) black-pilled. So I really am talking like Chrisman right now. But Dark Waters, it was the first time I saw in ages in the cinema. It made me weep buckets. It made me cry more than any other film this year. I think Todd Haynes is like a brilliant filmmaker for so many different reasons. I still haven't seen Wonderstruck, but it's got a lot to say. I'm sure this was Neil Young's favorite film of 2020 as well. It's so his <laughs> shit. And it's it's in the canon of Mark Ruffalo finding out things. And it's the best one. It's way better than Spotlight. <laughs> if you didn't like Spotlight, watch this film. If you did, you should still watch this film. I think it's fucking brilliant, actually. I had way less of an emotional response to Dark Waters than you. And yeah, it's because you watched it on your phone. <laughs> no, no, we watched no, it on, I'm joking. In, I'm joking. on the <laughs> biggest screen in the house. 14 inches. No, we watched it on the TV in the lounge. And I just thought it was extremely staid and very generic and procedural. And I felt like I should have had more of a response to it because it's about, like, you know, like a serious like community issue, but I thought Richard Jewell was way more successful in eliciting an emotional response to like an individual's plight. Um, I feel like the political concerns of Dark Waters are way more aligned with my own as well. So I, yeah, I don't know why I responded more to Richard Jewell than Dark okay. Waters. I thought they were both good. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't really rate Dark Waters to be honest. They're both films about how. The government or just like corporations will destroy the life of like a totally average normal like working class person 
for sure. I'm not talking about Mark Ruffalo's lawyer. I'm talking about the people he represents in the film. Yeah, of course, of course. And I think Dark Waters is the one that really communicated that extraordinarily for what you said about it being procedural and stayed. I think that's, you know, because there's no point if you're in the process of having your water supply poisoned by Monsanto or uh, DuPont or one of these companies, there's no day where your life changes, where you suddenly realize like, oh shit, I've gone beyond the point of no return. But it's the insidiousness of this film that I really appreciated. If I reflect on the narrative and, you know, the message, I'm sympathetic towards it, but I don't know. Maybe if I rewatch it, it will really tick all the boxes. Dark Waters and Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie. Great double bill. <laughs> I'm literally saying that because I did that this year. Samuel Story of the rock and roll band Phil Graves. What was your fourth favourite film that received a UK cinematic release <laughs> in 2020? Well, this film actually only showed on Mubi, I think, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Would have loved to have seen it in the cinema because I thought it was spellbinding at home and I can only imagine what it would have been like on a big screen. A Portuguese, A Portuguese Woman by Rita Azevedo Gomez. Yes. It's adapted from a 1924 short story by Robert Musil, who wrote The Man Without Qualities, Mm -hmm. which looks pretty wavy, to be honest. The film is set in the early modern period. That's the sort of unuseful term historians use to describe the period (laughs) after the medieval, but before (laughs) there were like trains and shit. Right. So I guess like the Reformation sort of renaissance is what people would think the look of the film is probably what's lodged it in my mind the most but the story and themes are also really interesting uh, i'll get to the aesthetics but just to outline it clara Riedenstein plays the eponymous portuguesa she has sort of very striking aspect she looks like the main character in brave the disney film <laughs> <laughs> her character i i don't think she even is afforded a name in the film which uh, I guess is sort of the point to a certain extent. She's married a German lord, von Ketten, the Lord of Chains, uh, a member of the Noblesse de Robe, which is a sort of socio-political elite whose status and political power isn't derived from their, their birth or their parentage and is therefore sort of more fragile and volatile. Right. Much of the film is spent with the Portuguese woman and her household sort of waiting for the return of her husband then, who's away sort of carrying out standard diplomatic responsibilities like attending bishops councils and fighting on battlefields <laughs> the the mise-en-scene it largely consists of their castle with its sort of crumbling facade and overgrown courtyards as well as some richer sort of mosaic interior spaces these scenes of waiting are punctuated by scenes of reunion which provides the basic structure for the for the film all of these things really reminded me of my favourite film of 2018, Lucretia Martel's Zama. Mm. But I guess it's sort of swapped around, but there's the same amount of sort of waiting and how that gives thought to like existential questions. But it's kind of more interesting having a like having that told from a woman's role as opposed to Zama, which felt a bit more like American beauty or something like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I guess Zama is very much about like male crises of power 100%. and identity. Whereas this is like a, yeah, a different sort of gendered historical experience. Equally well done, though. Zama is a fantastic film. The Portuguese are sort of like slow cinema, I guess. Sure, They're... sure. It definitely reminded me of like a picture pong at times mm. with the, the way the camera was sitting. Mm, for sure. 
I personally kind of struggled with this film, but I think if I'd got to see it in the cinema, it would have been a totally different experience for me, personally. Yeah, big time. I think just time, the way time works in this film is pretty mad. Uh, there's just lots of time and space to sort of linger and contemplate. I guess it sort of reflects the interiority of the protagonist and the relation of the characters to the space around them in a really interesting way for me. Um, it's not especially long, though. I think it's just over two hours, if memory serves. Mm -hmm. It has a really dreamy quality. Ingrid Cavan plays a sort of chorus figure who haunts the castle grounds, singing songs that sort of respond to screen events and is invisible to the characters in the frame. On another day, I might have found that quite alienating or annoying, but it just sort of worked for me when I watched it. You'd bond the right amount of zoots before starting the film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it has, yeah, I just need to talk about the aesthetics then. has really simple painterly cinematography. A clock that Acasio de Almeida was the DP, and he shares mm. a cinematography credit for Pedro Costa's film Asangi, uh, Blood. Obviously, Blood is a completely different aesthetic to Costa's later work. That is such a cool film, man. It looks a lot like uh, Damnation or Satan Tango or one of those kinds of films. Mm, yeah, I guess from what I saw, it looked just more sort of uh, Italian influence, sort of neorealist vibes. Mm. And it's also completely different to this film, which is like extremely painterly. Some of the scenes are super minimalist, like Vermeer-esque domestic interiors. And then there are larger ensemble scenes with a sort of tableau vivant quality. Either way, it's like really vignette and these are episodes in this woman's life that are spread over the course of years. There's not much camera movement, like maybe the odd sort of slow moving dolly sort of tracking shot, but usually it's very self-contained and it does feel like it's drawing on the sort of compositional or symbolic language of the period in which it's set. And Definitely. Yeah, I just think it did that so well. The lighting was mad, especially the castle interiors. Very striking. I sort of got the impression that they favoured the use of natural light wherever possible, as well as being like super dreamy throughout. It also felt like quite naturalistic. You see quite a lot of like floating dust catching the <sighs> light in some of these sequences and stuff. You know. Yeah, exactly. All these scenes just sort of play out. So I guess that contributes to it as well. Um, the soundtrack, largely sort of diegetic period music, people singing, strumming little pre-modern guitars. There's a great rendition of the French drinking song Quand je bois du vin clare, which I recorded a version of for our Henry Ad episode, I think. That's right, yeah. Which is sung by a group of villagers as they're sort of being tracked by the camera, walking together and sort of converging at a sort of locus of settlement that's a really cool scene if there's not someone on screen when you can hear some sort of plaintiff viol playing it does feel like they're just like sort of hidden around the corner rather mm. than like music being intrusive the only intrusive music is the sort of chorus singing which is a sort of thing in and of itself i guess like another sort of narrative device outside of the sort of main strategies being used here uh, I gotta watch it again, man. I feel like I didn't really give it a fair shot, um, but <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's clearly sick. Yeah, know? I guess it just left like a real impression. Um, I thought it was really sensational when I was watching it. As I said, I wish I'd seen it in the cinema, but I just watched it in the lounge when I was preaching. It was quite late at night, but yeah, I just thought it was sort of really overwhelmingly beautiful and a really 
captivating film. And yeah, the way all these sort of formal aspects like the music and the image itself illuminate the film's theses on domestic life, war, early modern gender relations, all this stuff. I just thought it was very skillful. That's A Portuguesa by Rita Gomez. Check it out. Emmett, what was your third favourite film of 2020? My, you're getting tired of this yet? Um, yeah, it feels like uh, we're presenting the fucking Eurovision results or some shit. Well, it's Just funny so you should say that, Sam, because <laughs> no, don't. my num my number three was not Fire Saga, sadly, but that's a cool film. My number three is a film I know you haven't seen, but I would bet the sixty pounds in my account on the fact that you would love it. It's Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets by the Ross Brothers, Bill Ross the Fourth and Turner Ross. Really mad film. We've talked about Smokers Aloud on the podcast mm. before. And like when I heard someone else describing this on another podcast, I think it was Charles Promesco on the Little White Lies podcast. I was like, that just sounds like that Nathan for you. Da, 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 da. But what I didn't realize was that this reminded me a lot of Close Up, one mm. of the best films of all time and Goodbye Dragon Inn also one of the best films of all time. It's about the last night of a bar in sort of the outskirts of Las Vegas called the Roaring Twenties. It's a real bar, although it wasn't actually closing down, but they uh, basically got a bunch of actors to play a bunch of real patrons of this bar, spend their night really getting drunk, really listening to fucking problems and Lemonade by Gucci Man and The Gambler by... Kenya Rogers, which also features in Richard Jewell. Amazing soundtrack, basically. They're playing real people, but they're all actors, and they all, every single person, delivers like a very deeply felt performance, despite the fact that they're playing a character. I haven't heard Smokers Aloud talked about in the context of this film. I have heard about it talked about in the context of Synecdoche, New York. Mm. But this film is full of really amazing moments. It just has a whole feel to it. It can't have been made with a very big crew, probably the second smallest crew of any film in our top tens. But mm. it's just full of unforgettable moments, really. And like the only things you learn about the characters are what is disclosed through like conversations they have. And they're all definitely getting actually drunk. It has a sort of celebratory feel. I hate to tie it into, scare quotes, these uncertain times. But, you know, I'd love to go to the pub and get, like, really fucked up and do some acid and not have to eat a portion of chicken wings to do so. Every performance was great. I wish I could spend more time with these characters. I wish there was, like, a... You know, like the, the middle part of Satan Tango, if that was a whole film, but instead of being miserable, they're escaping from their misery by like partying with each other. And they're all sad about this bar closing, but whereas it may mean a lot to them in their lives, it's not the end of the world for most of the characters, apart from one. And it has so much to say about uh, cyclicity. Is that a word? It has so uh, much to yeah. say about just existence. And if you like to... A moment of innocence. No one gets killed in this film, but it's it borrows similar practices and it's similarly really deep, I think. Sounds intriguing, man. The performativity aspect sounds interesting. I think the pub's being closed, obviously, you know, is a lens through which to experience it in these uncertain times. Um, but if I'd watched it last year, I definitely still would have like yeah. come out of it really appreciating it. I did watch it on Christmas Day. Mm. Did they make it in 2019? 
Well, I assume so because no one's wearing masks. Otherwise, everyone in this film yeah. is insanely irresponsible and inconsiderate. Yeah, they did make it in 2019, yeah. I think. Check it out. It's on lookmovie.ag. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm surprised that it's on there. I'm looking forward to watching it, man. <clears throat> You'd love it. It's like Little Film Club in real life. <laughs> but without... Uh, there's no Roger Rabbit. Cool. Sam, what was your third favourite film of 2020? It was Baccarat. Aforementioned hey. Baccarat, directed by Cleverman's own Tofilio and Giuliano Dornells. I didn't see it in the cinema. You saw it in the cinema, didn't you? It was my last film in the cinema. Mm. I'd love to see it in the cinema at some point. I've watched it a couple of times this year. just think it's brilliant. As I mentioned earlier, and as we've discussed at length in our Clayton Mendoza episode, it just transforms like the themes that he's explored in his earlier films in like a very radical and entertaining way. Definitely. It's about a town being removed from Google Maps and what happens next. Mm. Yeah. It has a proper genre film approach to this storytelling as well. Not just because it has like Udo Kier in it. Mm. It gives you what you want. I think because you don't know what it's going to be as it goes. Um, sure. Because it starts with like sort of mysterious, like ambiguous South American, like Western-y vibe uh, setting. It introduces like the political sort of marginal quality of these characters. Back around the town they live in is like uh, ex, uh, like Colimbo, like a, sorry, I probably botched the pronunciation of that, but like a town founded by sort of freed or escaped slaves yeah. as a sort of refuge against sort of colonialism, basically. And yeah, it just dramatises that dialectic in a fascinating way. I think compared to Aquarius and Neighbouring Sounds, both of which are also like fucking sick films, guys. Mm. Like you've mm. got you to check them out and then listen to Film Grey's 017, our 18th episode. <laughs> I think like Clever Mendoza Filio has had a sort of combative relationship with the Brazilian state. Most of his sure. films have premiered at Cannes and have been like decried by the Brazilian government to the point where, much like Leviathan from 2014 mm -hmm. by Zvaya it led to a change in funding policy from the government of the country that it came from. That happened with Aquarius as well. Or, like, there was a big protest with the premiere of Aquarius, mm. but this film is like really doubled down on... like making that shit real life in a way that I haven't really... I mean, people like to talk about, like, oh, this is the film that, like, we need to combat Trump. Like, every every film that comes out in America, people say that about, whether it's fucking Mank or The Hunt or whatever. But I really appreciate the way that Clever Mendoza Filio and Giuliano Danellis uh, doubled down on this by... Not just, but this is an example of it. The casting, having indigenous people having non-binary people having like lgbt people like make up this community and exploring the idea of the aquilombo as like a refuge for all types of people who are like you know at threat from the state in brazil and giving them power it's a pretty simplistic thing to say but is truly deeply felt it's like writ large on the screen when these yeah. people are 60 feet tall as i like to say all the time there are three factions in the film the community of Bacarau the man hunters the international mm. death squad that are hunting them for sport and the corrupt local government so it really lays out its sort of political worldview or 
analysis of globalization in a very entertaining way you know the the climax of the film is a moment of great catharsis and For sure. uh, yeah i'd really recommend this to everyone um it's the most actiony film probably looking at uh oh wait till you hear my number one bro no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> um, my number two but it, yeah it does it pays off it gives you what you want as well as giving you food for thought for sure i really appreciate it i'm gonna be watching it for years to come Emmett, we're nearly done man oh can't believe it what's number two my number two was being a human person by fred scott <laughs> no my number two my number two was about endlessness by roy anderson a filmmaker we love dearly i know you were a bit underwhelmed by it after watching the living trilogy which is so consistent and like I, I mean, you can't call these films aggressive, but they're like purposeful. Mm. Whereas I would say About Endlessness is way more abstract, but it's probably the one that made me cry the most. And the whole feel is probably more broad than any of his other films. I guess it's about perpetuity. It's about uh, you know continuousness or any other mm. thesaurus.com. In uh, Being a Human Person, Anderson says that he wanted to call it about inexhaustibility the way that like the themes that have entered and exited his filmography over the last 50 years they all make up the experience of experience i really appreciate it it didn't make me laugh out loud as much as the others although that wine pour is just (laughs) classic i'm really glad we got a film from roy anderson this year if it's his last film it's a really nice one to go out on it's on movie right now folks so do check it out Oh, is it? Uh, it's the last new release I saw in the cinema. I'm not going to say too much about about Endlessness because we did speak about it at length very recently. It was, for me, one of the best films of the year just because it's a recapitulation of his film ethos, his philosophy, his aesthetic ideal. It's not... I don't know. I don't want to talk it down, to be honest, because it is great. But he's just made some, like, true masterpieces, and this is, like, a, a more sort of autumnal note. That's it, I think. If it's, like, if you've seen the other Roy Anderson films, it's not going to be that impressive to you. If you haven't seen any of his other work, watch this shit immediately, please. Mm, yeah. But it's more the tones, you know, as a potential last film. I said it was better than Seven Women on the podcast. I'm not going to make that joke again or whatever. But it's better than uh, The Turing Horse and About Endlessness Double Bill. There you go. There you have it. Great. That's that's all you need to know about the world. (laughs) Bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. Sam, what was your number two film of 2020? My number two film of 2020 was for a long time going to be my number one because as soon as I saw it, I just thought that's the one. It's Saint Maud, directed by Rose Glass, a British filmmaker. It's her first feature film. It's quite short, 84 minutes, but it just does everything it should within that time. It's about a Morphid... How the fuck do you say it? Morphid? Apparently it's Morphid, yeah. Morphid Clark. Soon to be seen as uh, Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings TV series. Is that so? Yes. <sighs> Could be down, to be honest. She plays Maud, a young nurse in Scarborough. She's doing the sort of palliative care of an American performance artist, Mm. played by Jennifer Ely. 
Maud seems sort of reserved and timid and um, most importantly, like very religious, has very specific uh, form of piety, very like medieval, ecstatic, yes, bodily. It made me think of like Catherine of Siena and like sort of like mm-hmm. weird hagiography about like women drinking the pus of their patients and stuff like that. Ultimately, Rose Glass's story sort of subverts these hagiographical tropes or perhaps exposes their sort of darker psychological flip side. The film establishes a pretty deeply unsettling tone, which just grows and grows as the film goes on before reaching violent, even apocalyptic climax. It largely made me think of uh, St. Arthur of Gotham. Great. It made me think of uh, her saying, I am going to become the Joker for 2020 cinema. But that's just me. Carry on. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I guess like Joker, it is also very much about mental health. Mm -hmm. She's a character in desperate need of like mental attention, but she's the caregiver and does not receive it. Ultimately, that has like very negative consequences. um, That's it, right? For everyone. And yeah, it does take a sort of violent turn at the end. There's also a scene which recalls the sort of self-immolation scene in uh, Tarkovsky's Nostalgia. Yeah, sure. I thought it was great. I was slightly cooler on it than you, I think, just because I was going through some shit at the time. I was also uh, giving palliative care and having a mental health crisis at the time. Yeah, great. Perfect conditions. (laughs) I should have just gone to see Bill and Ted in the cinema again, as opposed to going to see this, to be honest. Yeah because I was a bit unprepared for it. The thing that really stuck with me was that scene where there's the one uh, where she's in her, like, non-friend visits her in her flat and she's, like, smoking cigarettes and, like, there's so much unspoken between the two, but, like, there's so much going on in that sequence that I Mm. love. But I loved what you said about how she's the caregiver who, like, doesn't receive any care at the expense of, like, all of us, which is, like, to me, the message of the film Mm. in a way. Mm. Um, yeah big time man and it's really noble it's been picked up by a24 so our american listeners be prepared to get sick of this shit like all the other (laughs) classic a24 films before it but yeah it was sick actually and i'm glad it did so well at the box (laughs) oh my god i don't say that (laughs) it's true though it's an extremely commendable first directorial effort the way the tension is ratcheted up throughout is exemplary i think have you seen A Quiet Passion? Rings a bell. Remind me what it is. It's the Terence Davis film about Emily Dickinson, which features Jennifer Ely as her sister. Cool. That's a fucking sick film, man. That takes place over like 20 years as opposed to like 20 days like this film. But Ely, great actress. I've never seen Pride and Prejudice or like the other shit she's in. But I thought her performance was brilliant, to be honest. Yeah, she plays a very sort of um, provocative almost like flapper-ish figure out of time and place in this like Yorkshire seaside town. Great performance, great character dynamics. There was also some great framing with her like door um, in this like alley that faces the sea, like very, you know, filmic, unlikely (laughs) photographic framing, but it was very cool. One thing which I thought was really well done, comes towards the end when Maud has totally broken from, scare quotes, reality and has 
really sublimated her worldly existence to her God. Uh, long after hearing that she personally communicates with God, we finally hear his voice as she hears it. And it really effectively illustrates the way in which the conceptualization of God is a personal as well as a social or cultural construct. It's also really spooky and evocative of a moment which we alluded to earlier from Robert Eggers's The Witch. Maud's God speaks Welsh with a gravelly voice which reminded me of the witch's talking goat Black Philip. That is the devil. Subscribe to Film Grazer's forthcoming Patreon for more chat about St. Maud, perhaps. <laughs> episode. I'm quite extremist on this shit because I think unless your name is Ratman or Steve McQueen, if you're British, you shouldn't really make films. Uh, <laughs> so far. Yeah, so far. Good movie, though. It's a strong wreck. I thought it was really good as well. Emmett, what was your favourite film of 2020? My favourite film of 2020 was Mank by <laughs> David Fincher. My favourite film of 2020 was Vitalina Varela by Pedro Costa. I will never forget this film. I will never forget the feeling that it gave me. I will never forget sitting in the ICA, a place I hate. <laughs> really attuning my ears to the soundtrack which is apart from this plain engine is literally all just whispers mm. i was overwhelmed by the feeling of filmmaking and i hadn't it, this wasn't my first pedro costa film i'd seen horse money before which uh also features vitalina varela and i've seen osos since which is also just incredible i hate to make this about pedro costa because it's really not about that I think this is a really important point to it. It's a really collaborative process. Well, Vitalina Varela is the name of the main character. It's just like a real person. She wrote the screenplay? She wrote the screenplay and she's the star of the film. And the film is about her own life. And I guess Pedro Costa sort of conceives his role as being an archivist or a recorder. But he also throws like the last 120 years of motion picture no, fuck that. The last, like, <laughs> 600 years of portraiture and uh, understanding of light into the way he captures is an aggressive word. But yeah, Archives records these true stories. Yeah, that's a really important point to make as a piece of social history. It really is essential and honest X, where do you even start? The colour is mad. Yeah. It's all, like, mad green, dank exteriors... Yeah, um, but then when you see those red doors, you're like, ah! Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, but that's the thing. It somehow is also extremely, like, transcendental. Yeah. Um, compared to Horse Money, his film from 2014, which is one of the best films I've ever seen. I like this more, though. Although I think you will like Horse Money more. I'm going to watch it very soon. Before Horse Money, he made a film about Stroke Ye making their last film, I think, which I'm desperate to see. Cool. And that's way more informed by that or it's way more well i don't know because even that's a gender thing right where it's like ventura who plays the priest in this film his experiences of like protests and like fighting with the police and how that's like haunted his whole life that's what horse money's about whereas vitalina varela is about vitalina varela's like experience from getting off the plane from cape verde to lisbon going to meet i compared it to the third man in this little capsule review i wrote for vice about it but it is kind of that She's been waiting to like receive the money to fly over to 
join up with her husband in Lisbon for like 15 years or something, right? When she gets there, he's dead and the place that he's been living in has been demolished. This film is largely shot in the daytime, but there's barely any natural light in this film, at least like directly. If there is natural light, it's like in its third bounce off like a surface or whatever. It's so submerged in shadows. I mean, this is one, th like the lighting is like one thing about this film that I will never forget. This film was made with a crew of 12 Great. and a cast of 13. Mm. And most of those only feature in like a procession scene where they sort of mm. walk past. Mm. It just is the best film I've seen this year. Mm. It is the best film I've seen in several years in the cinema, I think. Because I think in terms of what cinema, like I hate to be all like this about it. Because my love for it was very organic and very like I walked out of it like that's one of the best films I've seen in the cinema. But I'm still processing it. I haven't rewatched it in nine months, but so much of it is so burned into my brain. And there's so much to celebrate. I think people could really take a lot from this film. Any Anyone could take a lot from this film. Despite the fact that it's one of the most culturally specific filmmaking projects I've ever come across. Yeah, It's not a documentary, but it's not a fiction film either. It's like a lived experience film. What's the um, area called? The sort of slum... Okay, it's called Fontainash. Fontainus. Right. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. So they shot this in where she's walking around like the exoskeleton of the place where her husband used to live in. She's trying to discover shit. No one's going to tell her. Everyone's like, just go home. Like, you don't want to find out. Like, it's just such a mad story. And as you say, it's so specific to that, like, sort of cab over there in diaspora and that very specific experience. But that also. There is a universality to it where it's about class relations, you know, globalization and like the ability to move around and thrive and the way the aesthetics relate to and so much more like That's specific, it. like cultural, political. Uh, this is why I need to watch Horse Money because. Dude, you need to you need to watch Horse Money like. This one doesn't have any police. This like it's about class relations, as you say, but it doesn't have any other classes in it like. The whole film is both one of the least glamorous films I've ever seen and definitely one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. 100%. And despite being so shrouded in darkness, it also finds a way not just to photograph but to communicate the experiences of these Cape Verdean migrants. I've just never seen, like, even though I've seen Horse Money and Ossos, I've never seen anything like it before. I guess because Vitalina Varela is such like a powerful, emotive screen presence. And just yeah. there's so much weight there to, I don't know, to dwell on. Best actress. Yeah. I'll never forget Vitalina Varela, either the woman or the film. That's all i got to say. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it so much, man. I'm looking forward to watching it again, not at the ICA, and watching Horse Money and other Pedro Costa films. I also here just want to quickly shout out Toby Green at King's College London, who teaches a really good class on Portuguese colonial history and Lucifer Africa. Um, that's Vitalina Varela. Do you know you can watch it now? It's out on Second Run DVD. Yeah, it's they. It's not on Mubi anymore, but Horse Money is. But it's you can get it on Blu-ray. I will be getting the Blu-ray. I can't wait. Shout out 
second run because yeah. they yeah. they've done so much for film culture this 100%, year and man. and the last like twenty years. I Steph got me good by dragging in on the uh, second run Blu-ray Great. reissue, and that that is also the best film of twenty twenty. I hate to crib from the extended clip <laughs> podcast, but it just is like it just is. Sam, what was your number one film of twenty twenty? Well, I sort of um denied quite a lot about this, and then I decided, you know, not all of these films had theatrical distribution. True. So I don't think that should preclude inclusion in the list, you know? Sure. Should not preclude being at the top of the list. You and you and sight and sound. <laughs> there are other technicalities that need to be confronted here because I suppose it sort of is five films rather than one that I've got at number one here. But if we're going down that route, then About Endlessness is 33 films, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, it's... Small Axe, Steve McQueen's BBC series, Five Films, Mangrove, Lovers Rock, Red, White and Blue, Alex Wheatle and Education. Five, I don't even know where to start. I think we're going to do an episode, I'd like to do an episode on these in their own right because they deserve or they warrant, you know, lengthy analysis and discussion. As a project, I suppose most people will be familiar with it now. It's, I think it's aired on Amazon in the United States now. I'm not sure about other territories, but I finally caught up over the last few days and I just think they're all amazing. I couldn't pick out my favourite one. I know Lovers Rock, as you alluded to, um, I think that topped the Sight and Sound poll, didn't it? That was Sight and Sound's number one film of 2020. Yeah, Understandable. That one's about blues parties. Yeah, that one's about music, but all of these films are so reflexive, I think. Like, there were so many things, like the talismanic presence of C.L.R. James. Happy birthday. Um, C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins, how that mm. sort of re- reappears and how music functions. There's so many amazing things about this project. I'd heard about it about 10 years ago. Yeah, I think God. it was when it first started to be reported when 12 Years a Slave was like coming out. Like, oh, Steve McQueen's working on this mad, like, history of black britain and they you know spent years casting it years researching it sorry i've i've uh hijacked your oh no 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 that's fine yeah i think as historical dramas they're extremely important um yeah depicting episodes in british history that are neglected i think an important thing to note here is that obviously shown on bbc on bbc iplayer as well you can watch them now but there's also supplementary materials for educational purposes. So, mm. you know, they can be used as part of like GCSE curricula about the Windrush generation, post-colonial Definitely. legacies, cultural exchange. They cover a wide range of topics and phenomena from, well, Lover's Rock that we've mentioned was about blues parties. That takes place over the course of an evening. Um, that's inspired by like Steve McQueen's aunt telling stories about mm. like sneaking out on a Saturday night to go to a blues party and then climbing back in through a window before going to church. I was trying to sell it to a mate of ours recently by saying it's a film about reloads, man. Like who doesn't <laughs> who doesn't love that? You know? It really is. They um play the same song like three times in a row in one scene. And it's great. The Kunta Kinte dub classic. And it also features Dennis Bovell, the writer of countless lovers rock classics, like as just a sort of presence in the party like 
singing along to the songs he wrote. That's really cool. When he was a young man. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just it, in terms of synopsizing, Red, White and Blue stars John Boyega. That's about a young like scientist played by Boyega who joins the, the Met to like sort of change their sort of discriminatory practices from within. Probably my least favourite. Alex Wheatle is about a young orphaned black kid that grows up in Surrey, moves to Brixton, about his integration into that community and his arrest after the Brixton riots in 1981. He's a like young adult fiction writer. Yeah. I haven't actually heard of him, but it's a fascinating story. Education, I guess it's sort of in the name. Um, that's a fucking mad one about how black kids in London, specifically West Indian kids, were sort of targeted for exclusion from or expulsion from the mainstream sort of school system and put in these like educationally subnormal schools where they're like non-schools and about like efforts to stop that happening through the lens of this like young kids experience. I think that's like sort of semi-autobiographical. And Mangrove, the feature length one, is about a restaurant in your own Notting Hill, in Labrick Grove. Indeed. And police interference there and harassment, which led to a protest against police sort of brutality and interference in which nine people, the Mangrove Nine, were arrested, charged with inciting riots and tried at the Old Bailey, one of the main sort of proud courts in, in this country. Huge legal case, but not really part of the public imagination anymore. So that's the point. It's just so important to uncover these stories. There's a institutional critiques going throughout. So interrogative. Really brilliant. The historical details are just amazing. We, I can't even get into it now. It's just amazing. There's so many things, like all the records in the record shop in Alex Wheel, or like the way they got All Saints Road, the place where I've got all my guitars fixed, to look yeah. like a community space, which is certainly not what it looks like when you walk down that street in it's 2020. Mad. At the beginning of Mangrove, there's this shot where it pulls out into the sky and you can see the Westway, the sort of um, flyover motorway in West London being constructed. I think there's potentially an aspect ratio shift. Just seeing it, I don't know how they did it. It's amazing. It's actually brilliant. I've never been anything less than like bowled over by Steve McQueen's filmmaking technique, which is something I would not mm. say about his other art projects, like that year three thing. <laughs> That I was yeah, seeing I mean, posters for it's a bit naff in it. It looked kind of shit to me, you know. I definitely wouldn't pay twenty quid to go see a bunch of school photos, <laughs> but I would pay twenty quid to go see any of these in the cinema, let alone all of them. God, there's literally so much to say about this shit. I feel very overwhelmed. I didn't include it in my list because, well, I have no answer. It's number zero in my list. It was like an incredible, <laughs> incredible project. Alex Wheatle was really interesting, I think, because like. There were certain figures like Darkus Howe and Leroy Logan that I was aware of prior to this. But the way that like all these characters do inform each other, even though they're all in like five very distinct narratives. And like 100%. the fifth one is autobiographical, right? Yeah. Which is the maddest thing. And that's why it's the maddest way to end on it. Like the way the last scene of education feeds into like the first scene of Mangrove. The way that like community leaders and initiatives and dialogue, most importantly, was the thing that like, that's the thing in all of these films that really like ties it together, I think. Not like dialogue, like within the community, not like got to hear both sides or whatever. Fuck that. Yeah, I'd say it's quite one sided, like yeah. cops in this are bad. Yeah, which is why like, that's why Red, White and Blue has to be the one in the middle, right? 
Yeah. But this this was the year that I also watched, like, largely thanks to Ashley Clark. Mm, I wanted to bring that up, actually. At and some just Twitter.com. We'll get to it. But yeah. this was the year that I watched, like, Black's Britannica, Handsworth Songs, Who Killed Colin Roach, like... Blood or Go Run. Blood or Go Run, exactly. Like, all of which, like, feed into this. The fact that Steve McQueen, who's won Oscars, he made, like, 12 Years a Slave. He made fucking Widows, which is, like, a supremely entertaining film. He made Shame, mm. which is a film I really dread to rewatch, but I did That's really appreciate That's the only it. one I haven't seen. Well, you should definitely watch it, man. Yeah, I will when we... Yeah. Hunger, you know, like, super unpleasant film, but there's so many techniques that were so eye-catching and, like, staggering to me in Hunger when I hadn't really, like, become a cinephile yet. And I was just, like, bowled over by these, like, 10-minute-long takes or whatever or these mm. pan pan shots of walls, which mm. I would later see in, like, Tarkovsky and Tar and all these filmmakers that I love. But, like, using them for an actual recognisable political purpose, like... The way that shit is used in Hunger or in mm. the prisons in his films, like from Hunger to Alex Wheatle, is one of many examples of how this is like such an amazing project, to be honest. Like, and the way that like people talk about 12 Years a Slave as being like, yeah, it's like an awesome project and like it needed to be made, but it trades off like selling black misery or black trauma or whatever. And how this isn't selling that. No, stories of resistance, yeah. solidarity. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Self-determination. And there's no messianic Brad Pitt producer Christ-like figure in any of these films. <laughs> One thing I love about Small Axe is that, as well as uncovering these very specific uh, sort of community and, I guess, ethnic post-colonial histories, um, it also, like, sort of takes a wider look at the historical period it's looking at and other experiences in the time like there are a few scenes that deal with sort of indian or pakistani cultural experiences yeah at the time red white and blue as i said was probably not i think it's definitely my least favorite for a number of reasons but one of the characters is a pakistani guy who's nominally joined the police force for the same reason as John Boyega's character. And they go to a, uh, like a curry house that's been graffitied with like racial slurs. Ultimately, that character can't hack it. <laughs> and he like <laughs> quits or whatever. There's another scene in Mangrove where Letitia Wright's character, Andrea jones LeCoin, a uh, Black Panther sort of organiser, campaigner, is addressing workers in a factory and a bunch of them are like old, like Indian guys and then they like take her home um, for tea and then there's a sort of veiled critique of gender relations in like Asian diaspora communities in, in London. It's interesting. These things aren't really dealt with or explored on screen. Um, there's a reference to the death of Blair Peach yeah. in Alex Wheatle. That's something that's never spoken about. A guy that was killed supposedly by a police person. There's no, um, it was unsolved at an anti-racist rally in Southall, just down the road from me in the 80s. <sighs> It's just such a vital project. I guess Vitalina Varela is vital in the same way. But I guess just for me, it's just closer to home. Sure. I mean, the distinction I would draw is like, even though Alex Wheatle was involved with the script writing of his episode, it's a way more historiographical mm. function with small acts, right? To me. I mean, he talks about it in 
film comment. He's chronicling. He's chronicling, and it's uh, you know, he's doing it because this is a generation that are really old now, right? This yeah, is for sure. You know, it's still while it's still within living memory, and people are able to tell these stories. The BBC has missed this opportunity for decades and decades. Sure. To tell like a vital part of British history, like we get a new fucking Le Carre adaptation every year, but we've never had something like Small Axe before. Also, just how how important music is to the films. I mean, it's an easy thing for me as a fucking colonizer to appreciate. It's like, yeah, I love the tunes, man, but like. It's a proper heteroglossia, right? Mm. Not even just the way that like a patois denotes like comfort. Like you see the difference between people talking to like people from their own community versus like people talking to the police or people appearing in court or people talking to their social worker. All of these things. It's just so many brilliant performances as well. On that, you know, these like Caribbean accents that are like way more assimilated into the sort of fabric of speech in yeah. sort of London accents now are just way like sort of fresher but there are also sort of turns of like cockney almost and it's just like a weird exercise it's sure it's an interesting sort of reconstruction of how people would have spoken and as you mentioned very rightly there's a lot more code switching beyond that why do you think lovers rock is like film critics favorite i think because it's the least analytical <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because it's less weighted with the baggage of history. I don't even think that's the case. Man. It's more spontaneous than the others, right? You, okay, that's a that's a good way to put you it. You can feel like you're in the moment, whereas with Alex Wheatle, it's like a recollection. With education, it's a memoir. Yeah. With Red, White, and Blue, it's like a you know these are all journeys. Mangrove, it's a court case, like yeah. It's immersive to watch and the way they structure that story is the longest one I said is um, over two hours and the second half pretty much is the court proceedings in, in various forms. But Lover's Rock is immersive in a different way. The music is vibey, you know, like yeah. it makes sense why that's the one that jumps out, I think. Well, he throws a lot of uh, like very original filmmaking technique into it, as as you said. I mean, there's a cool party sequence in Blue Story, and Michael Ward also gives a great performance in that, as he does in this. Yeah, I would I would still say like the threat is always there. You know, those couple of street scenes yeah. when they're not in the house, and there's just like lurking fucking nasty white boys like yeah. on the street, like antagonizing the people who go to this party or whatever. As soon as they're outside of the space, is like. I feel like people talk about Lovers Rock as if it's like the most different to the other four, by and large. But I think it's just structurally different, but the themes are all there. And yeah, you're, that's so important. The sort of pernicious socio-political context are always just round the corner. There's a, um, a sexual assault scene in it. Mm. It's not entirely rose-tinted in its view of um, what those parties were like, but it's still like a wash with nostalgia. It's a beautiful film. Nicely said. I think my favorite was Alex Wheatle, you know. Fair enough. I loved it all as like a, what are we talking, like six hours. I mean, it's not as long as other films we talked about on the podcast before, but it both blurs the lines between like film exhibition and TV. I didn't include it in my list, I guess, because I didn't see it in the cinema. I wasn't like at a film festival to watch, but even if I was, they only screened the first three and like Alex Wheatle and Education were not screened at film festivals. Mm which is mad. I would have not been afraid to have sat down for six hours and watched the whole thing. I would actually love to do that. 
yeah. I think these demand rewatching, and I think they'll be really important for decades to come, to be honest, because there's nothing like it. What are the precedents? Babylon. Babylon and Pressure are like awesome films, but they don't really feel anything like this. Yeah, there's nothing like this. Which, especially for something to come out of Britain. Yeah, it's just a staggering achievement. It is. By one of the Queen's true sons. Uh, <laughs> sure. Shout out Steve McQueen. This is your best work. I agree, I think. Well, no, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> You're still listening to Film Greys. You just heard our top 10s of 2020. Sam, is there anything that you watched in 2020 that didn't come out in 2020 that was still a vital experience Mm. as a cinephile? Yeah, quite a few of them, to be fair. A lot of them rooted in episodes that we did. Lots of John Ford films, like 30 of them. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're doing it all over again, listeners. Um, This is the Ford Fiesta. Especially, I guess, Wagon Master, uh, How Green Was My Valley, Pilgrimage, The Rising of the Moon. These ones that I sort of have on my list here as like real standards. The Rising of the Moon was going to be the one that I would have selected as a first time like jaw dropper, Mm. personally. Yeah, great film about sort of Irish life, classic Ford, very underseen, I feel. Would you say it's a, a small axe for the Irish? No, I'm joking. That's <laughs> fucked up. There's so much more though, man. Um, Beyond Ford, Satan Tango. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I know you'd seen it a few times before, but it sort of changed the game, really. Very glad we did an episode on that. Very glad we watched it together at the beginning of the year. Also put me onto a lot of cool Hungarian directors. Uh, Miklos Jancsó, who's... A bunch of these films I've watched recently, Zoltan Fabri. I watched um, Hungarians yesterday, which is just great. I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's a really interesting national film tradition. Going to keep getting involved with that. And Satan Tango was the jumping off point, really. Lots of cool, like Polish cinema, this film Night Train. Who would have thought when we sat down to watch the seven hour Satan Tango, there was going to make you want to watch more Hungarian films? (laughs) For sure. Well... It's just such a formally crazy film. You can listen to our episode or watch it better still uh, if you're interested. But Miklos Jancsó is a case in point, really. A really singular way of representing action on film. But really amazing camera work on all of these and really interesting historical and social themes. There's just so much to talk about, man. You mentioned earlier A Moment of Innocence, uh, Mosin Mahmabov's. Mm-hmm. film the the director that the guy pretends to be in close-up that's a, an amazing film Ugh. reminiscences of a journey to Lithuania. i hadn't seen any jonas michas before you'd oh. um you'd um spoken about his work to me before i watched a bit of los los lost as well um it's just an a- amazing style i feel like these are all like sort of vaguely related as like 20th century explorations of recent national and personal history that's been the vibe. Just watched so much good shit, man. Probably my most prolific film watching year being in lockdown. And I'm glad we got to graze on a bunch of them, man. That's great to hear. Yeah. One more shout out for the human condition, actually. 
Masaki Kobayashi's anti-war epic. Some consider it uh, one film. It's sort of three films. Um, it's like nine hours or something. Uh, <laughs> but it's just amazing. Fires on the Plane won our film club um, members poll. Um, and that's another amazing Japanese anti-war film that sort of unpacks contemporary Japanese imperialism and chauvinism. Shout out Brandon Sheehan, the homie, for getting us to watch that. It was unforgettable. Um, Emmett, what about you? Okay, well, I'm just looking at my letterbox right now, so it's not going to be that. Uh, I watched Don't Let the River Beast Get You twice this year. (laughs) Oh, cool. And uh, I bought the Blu-ray from uh, Justin DeClue and Will Sloan's Gold Ninja video. That's great. Twice was not enough. (laughs) Other highlights, Under the Son of Satan. Oh, it was a real highlight of the year, man. You know, yeah. that had things I'd never seen before, such as a brilliant performance by Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> um, Under the Son of Satan was the first film club film. The Genesis, the yeah. Alpha. Yeah. Yes. And it was great. Classic priest film. For sure. Uh, Guided by Voices, Watch Me Jumpstart, a documentary about the tour after Alien Lanes came out, which was recently put out on YouTube by Matador Records to coincide with the 25th anniversary of Alien Lanes. Mm. Just has a lot of unbelievable footage. You're hanging out with, you know, my favourite person in the whole world, being a person who isn't quite the same person that he is now. There's a bit more, like, bewilderment in his eyes, whereas, I mean, Robert Pollard doesn't get interviewed that much on camera these days, but kind of feels like he's seen it all and he's done it all. He's been around the world a few times. When they made uh, Watch Me Jumpstart, that was like their first tour of the United States even. So he's a different person. I loved that. I loved Canyon Passage by Jacques Tourneur. That's a five-star film for me. Beautiful tunes by Hoagie Carmichael. When we talk about First Cow, I'll talk about it a bit more. If you like like Dead Man or McCabe and Mrs. Miller, this is another very like community-focused Western. Cool. McCabe and Mrs. Miller was also among my favourite first-time watches this year. And Nashville, which we were hoping to see this month at the BFI but I guess that's not not gonna happen now yeah I mean it's it's got to happen at some point surely every time I watch playtime it feels like the first time I'm seeing it because there's so much to look at so I'm just gonna shout out my uh viewing of playtime in February and for an actual one Shanghai Express by Joseph von Sternberg brilliant with Marlena Dietrich one of seven films they made together And I say they made together as opposed to films he made with her in because there's a lot of back and forth in that filmmaking partnership. This was the one that was the most jaw-dropping for me. I'd seen The Blue Angel before. I've since seen Morocco and Blonde Venus and these sorts of films. But Shanghai Express, couldn't think of a more perfect movie, to be honest. Outrageous dialogue, the best lighting I've seen apart from in Vitalina Varela this year. For a 75-minute film, time totally collapses. I will never forget it. It was perfect. Yeah, I second that. It was brilliant. Brilliant performances, brilliant lighting. For another beautifully lit train film uh, that I watched this year, I think both 15, of these... 15, 17. No, both of these would have featured in the, the Trains episode for sure. Night Train by uh, Jeji Kavalerowicz. I mentioned it earlier, but I'll cut it out. That's set on a sleeper train going through Poland. It's pretty mysterious. has a really cool soundtrack as well with like vibraphones. And like all those Eastern European films I was talking about, it's like dealing with like recent political history. Um, But the lighting is just amazing. And yeah, in Shanghai Express, it's just, I guess, like ravishing is the word you'd use. Like it's very luscious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm jealous that you got to see some of those in the cinema and we will talk about them properly in due time, I think. I think you watched... um... 
Shanghai Express B2B, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Is that correct? Um, during lockdown, I tried to go through some sort of pre-code stuff, some old German expression. Like I watched like Dr. Mabuse, uh, The Gambler and The Testament of um, and like Destiny. Yeah. And just like trying to cover some of these like film schooly bases. Destiny took my head off, man. That I saw it three times in the cinema when it came out in 2017. Thanks to the BFI. Mm. My favorite Fritz Lang film still. Mm, it's great. I'm a fugitive from a chain gang is a pr- it was great. Paul Mooney. I, I I need to watch the original Scarface and um I think I'm afraid you're gonna have to for the Hawks Hiesta at some point, you know. Oh yeah still very much in the pipeline don't unsubscribe listeners whatever you do because you'd be playing yourself closely watch trains you fought with that yeah i thought it was brilliant my mum and shan were watching jojo rabbit and i sort of slinked off i was like oh i'm gonna watch a like serious film um i actually quite like jojo rabbit i, li- I liked what i re-saw of it um while they were watching it and they both seemed to like it but close watch trains actually sort of reminded me of it in that it's about this like sort of naive character on the sort mm. of periphery i thought it was brilliant surprisingly beautifully photographed as well for like quite a broad comedy quite fordian as well i'd say um with the sort of r- range of of characters the blend of tones the the serial comic or whatever yeah for sure and the fact that they're you know it's quite ritualistic their job i highly recommend to anyone interested in in Czech shit. I think I'm slowly beginning to understand what Czech New Wave actually denotes because it's I think it's sometimes it's used the... to denote like a style, but often it's just like a cheek certain cheekiness, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's like a that's the thing, isn't it? Which you couldn't say about like the Russian Thor films from the same time or whatever. It's the grease, man, it's the disrespect. Yeah. You know? I'm gonna throw a couple other first watches out there while we're still doing this. Cool. First Cow by Kelly Reichardt, which is from the future, and you'll hear about in <laughs> this episode from next year, and maybe the next episode of Film Grace as well. Tongues Untied by Marlon Riggs Ugh. was groundbreaking to me. Yeah, one of the best American films. Sure. Just for how much I've seen it be ripped off, you know. When we were watching it for Film Club, I was like, I mean, obviously the the emotions and the things that they're talking about were not invented for the purposes of tongues untied but the synthesis and the approach and the technique felt very novel and Mm. you could tell that it wasn't like he wasn't catting anything off anyone like he was doing something very real yeah very formally radical and moving document of um like 80s like queer culture I also watched um, Ethnic Notions after we watched Tongues Untied. And similarly, that's really deep. It's about um, the sort of history of stereotypical representations of black bodies in America, like whether on the stage or in like like novelty items. It's sort of like bamboozled, a sort of precursor to bamboozled. Everyone should watch that shit. In terms of rep cinema, I didn't really go see anything that I hadn't seen before in the cinema but i did see isaac julien's looking for langston in an art gallery and that was like something i'd never seen before it's a film about langston hughes Mm. but it's all about the uh spaces in which he moved and trying to recreate that which was a cool thing to sit down and watch in the middle of a 
you know, three-hour trip to an exhibition at the Barbican. Despite, like, I'd seen Young Soul Rebels before, and that's a classic. But looking for Langston was a very sick place to be. I'm going to have to check it out. My last favourite first watch of 2020 was definitely Out One, Nolimi Tangeri by Jacques Rivette. He made my favourite film of all time. I started watching Out One on day one of lockdown, thinking, oh, this is <laughs> going to be over pretty soon. But I think as you're supposed to feel after you watch it, like you can't really go anywhere from that, you know? Like the whole film is about all these people who have like been a part of 68 and been part of like a failed revolution and the sort of void that they occupy in that they're just like fucking around in and like playing all these games and like I, I mean I talked about this on the podcast before but I think I understand it a bit more than I did after just watching it where I was totally bewildered but still adored it it's a really incredible project I'm gonna you know now that we're in lockdown three I'm about to start watching Berlin Alexanderplatz tomorrow great the Fassbinder one not the not the new one I'll um I've got your copy of that one so I'll start that tomorrow do it man you've seen selena julie that's uh you're you're prepared oh yeah that was a real standout lockdown watch as well uh we also read a lot about film this year i think it's fair to say sam have there been any reading experiences that have stood out for you? yeah certainly probably nothing new although i did want to draw attention to ashley clark's history of um it was the it was the um issue that had Michaela Cole on the cover, wasn't it? Yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna go and grab it. Yeah, there was one article from Sight and Sound I wanted to draw attention to from the September issue. Ashley Clark scenes from a hostile environment, which looks at sort of black British protest film and um sort of representations in British media. Really interesting article that draws attention to a lot of important pieces of film and TV that, yeah, I'm going to keep checking out. Yeah, I mostly knew him as a presence on the Film Comment podcast who would make jokes about how much he loves the film Lock with uh, Tom Hardy (laughs) from 2014, which I'm always down for. I also rate that film. I want to read his uh, Bamboozled book. Um, Sold out, man. I really want to read it as well, but I don't think we're going to be able to get our hands on copies until it's reprinted but that article was a real coupe de grasse mm. <laughs> um any de any uh sort of articles you want to draw attention to or should you talk about books uh nick pinkerton's substack always good i also really loved joseph mcbride's review of mank obviously because even though i wish i didn't live in the same world as that film I'm down to read criticism about it. Um, I think one of the books that both of us really enjoyed reading this year was by Joseph McBride, um, his Searching for John Ford, which is an invaluable guide, I think, to the sort of life and works of John Ford and a really majestic book. I think I said it on the, the Ford Fiesta podcast that like it says on the back, surely this is the last word on John Ford now, but... There's still plenty to explore in that man's work. Sam, thank you very much for getting me the John Ford at Columbia box set for Christmas. That's an unforgettable present. Um, Yeah, that book, I'd recommend it to everyone, even people who've never watched a John Ford movie before. Uh, It's just an amazing achievement in writing the, without primary sources, the biography of a 
chronic liar and still making huh. a very rich yeah. official text about it. Loved it. I just thought about uh, a book I was looking for for a number of years, uh, William K. Everson's The Western. Just a great world to live in. I read about a bunch of films that don't exist anymore that I will have no chance <laughs> of seeing. But to explore, you know, it's the most standardized genre of film, I think, even more than the rom-com or the horror film. It's the most, like, you know exactly what to expect when watching a Western, where it's like the things you don't expect are going to be the things that trip you out and make it like a memorable experience. That wasn't really the case at the time they were writing that book in, I guess, the 60s. It reminded me of Kevin Brownlow's The Parade's Gone By in terms of the scope and the specificity at the same time, but I'd recommend it to anyone, really, even if you're not interested in Westerns. Great. I also read about a thousand pages of Jonathan Rosenbaum this year. Oh, yeah. This one charity shop in uh, North London. People just kept on dropping them off. I, I get loads of good films there. I got Blowout from there this year, for example, for a pound. But I'd, I'd read a Jonathan Rosenbaum book being like, wow, I've been looking for this all my life, like a hard copy. Now I've got it in my hands. And then I'd come back there the next day and they'd have another one. So placing movies, Brilliant. movies as politics and moving places. Moving places is cool because I'm probably never going to watch On Moonlight Bay. But as a memoir and as a, like a Proustian act of like exploring your former self, that's a really cool literary achievement. But also the essays in movies as politics, especially about films I don't like, like Forrest Gump. Yeah. And you got Playtime and Celine and Julie and all of that in the same book. So that's indispensable. I'm never putting that in an Oxfam in my life. Yeah, I think I've got Love it. Love you, j <laughs> Yeah, but you're no Oxfam, you know. Um, <laughs> This is for you, the listener. It's not for us. This this bell's for you, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, we have become a podcast with uh, episodic bibliographies now. So if you're interested in the sort of literary roots of what we're discussing, uh, feel free to peruse the episode descriptions for... Uh... The tag Gallagher erasure is too much. <laughs> yeah. My favourite... Oh, you know what? I totally forgot about my favourite piece of academic film scholarship that I read this year. Ra- Raising Kane. Fuck. <laughs> I did really enjoy... I- I've been reading more and more um, Bazan recently, actually, after reading The Wells one and bits from What is Cinema. Uh, I moved on to the Renoir one, which is similarly very pleasingly written, just like a nice philosophical, ontological way of thinking about film and... That's really a pleasure to read. I keep talking about this shit forever, though, so maybe we should draw a draw a line under it. One final question about 2020 before we wrap up this pod and move into the age of the vaccine, the age of the <laughs> mark of Cain. Uh, Sam, are you going to get the vaccine? No, I'm joking. Sam, we're a film podcast. We are also fans of film podcasts. Were there any listening highlights of the year for you you keep telling me about ones that i meet subscribe to but then forget to listen to i just keep it basic man with um important cinema club you've already mentioned it michael and us i'm obviously just a will sloan fanboy gotta love justin gotta love luke though honestly yeah well of course those people are serious critics in their own right we're recording this on will sloan's birthday though so happy birthday will sloan oh is that so yeah we we love you both brilliant entertaining podcast i yeah i'm not gonna weigh them up against each other tell us what we should be listening to beyond um our own pod 
<laughs> I'm going to shout out the cinematologists from the UK and eavesdropping at the movies, uh, which is a podcast from Warwick University. Jose Arroyo really killed the man criticism in a way that I couldn't even possibly dream of doing. A very invigorating listen. And I want to shout out the lads from Extended Clip. They talk about a bunch of films I don't want to see, but they still make it entertaining and vibey every time. And it's just a, a fun place to be. I would recommend everyone go check out Extended Clip, whether it's the Hubie Halloween slash Simon Lang's Days episode. I mean, there's actually just loads of loads of great ones. And I got a shout out Real Politic. They did a cool precy of Norman Jewison's career this year. That was cool. And they're just always good value, you know. This podcast wouldn't be the same without the, uh, Jack and Yair's work. Mm. And if you're not a dickhead, you'll listen to it because Milk Gapes. There's more as well. Loads of podcasts. Yeah, let's just talk about our podcast before we finish. It's such a bad place to wrap it up on. Let's get your favourite memes to 2020. Come on. 2020. Annus Mirabilis for cinema. Best year for cinema of all time. <laughs> just playing. It's been a shit show. Some good films still. Plenty. As evidenced by our, our list, I guess. Loads of films I'm pretty mad I didn't include. The Painted Bird. I'll never watch it again. But it was a really good movie. The Five Bloods. Major film. Mm, yeah, that was in the mix. The Pepe the Frog documentary. Oh yeah, feels good, man. I, I watched that recently and I thought it was really good, actually. Although I think it was like one of two documentaries that I watched uh, this year with the Roy Anderson one, which was way worse. Well, it's a, it's a dead format, you know. <laughs> yeah. More Pedro Costas and fewer Louis Theroux. Sam, thanks for doing this podcast with me this year. Oh, thanks for doing it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we make each other do it as much as one or the other. Well, no one else is making us do it. A couple of people were like, where's the new blonded? But I'm like, where's the new film grades within myself? More episodes than you could possibly imagine coming next year, dear listener. Yeah. And we're going to have a watch along of Peter Watkins's La Commune. Yeah. 1871 just in time it's the 150th anniversary of the paris commune so you know get involved great we're gonna set up a discord watch it all together on youtube i've never seen it before i'm really gassed peter watkins is one of the first filmmakers we talked about on this podcast he's not going anywhere one of my favorite films really looking forward to that thanks for listening to film grace in 2020 hope you stick around for new year as you said we have loads more coming i think we are gonna do the patreon and try and increase our output also. And the Depop. Yeah, and you want to start Depop. <laughs> yeah. Buy some second-handers off us. Yeah. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Happy New Year, folks. Lots of love. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>